0: Oftentimes, many people set themselves up to think that they're above the idea that they can be racist or they can be biased or discriminatory and oftentimes absolve themselves of the work to fix it. And I think that's probably a much bigger problem in the academy than even in the general public.
1: Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for our very last interview of the year, aptly titled 2020. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Marguerite Matthews, a Scientific Program Manager within the Office of Programs to Enhance Neuroscience Diversity at the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. Prior to her position at the NIH, Dr. Matthews completed a BSc in biochemistry, followed by a PhD in neuroscience and postdoctoral training in behavioral neuroscience. She's also a part of a phenomenal podcast, Building Up the Nerve, which is meant for neuroscience trainees to learn about the ins and outs of assembling a successful grant application for the NIH. I hope to speak with her today about her STEM journey and about how some of her earliest life experiences have influenced her path to present day. I'd also like to speak with Dr. Matthews about how she predicts the conversations surrounding racial identity that were propelled to the surface of our social discourse in 2020 will affect academia and the world at large. But let's start from the very beginning. Dr. Matthews, what's your story?
0: Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation. Um, I love talking about my story in science because in many ways, it's not remarkable at all. (laughs) (laughs) And in other ways, it is in the sense that sort of, as you said, there are so many barriers that can be part of this journey into a career in general, but certainly in the sciences. And I feel very lucky to be where I am. Um, And I have to say, part of my story is I never wanted to be a scientist. I, this is not at all what I set out to do when I was five. And someone, you know, my teacher asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up. Um, I thought I would be like Beyonce. Uh, I was, was going to be a superstar. I was going to be a superstar, <laughs> singer, dancer, actress, extraordinaire, mm-hmm. and um, that's not what happened at all. And a lot of How I got to where I am is really the work of mentors and people who um, approached me about new opportunities, um, particularly in the sciences, because I happen to have an affinity um, for the sciences, but not really because it's what I chose. Um, And I'm happy to go a little bit more into detail as you'd like, but um, I thought i I mean, even as I got older and into um, high school, I thought I was going to be a writer. I loved English. I loved literature. I loved to read. I loved to write short stories. Same here. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it was so liberating. And it was just so, I don't want to say easy, but it just came to me so naturally. You know, Mm -hmm. just the words flowed from me onto the page. I loved writing essays and all of that. And I also happened to be good at science. I was a straight A student. So, you know, I got good marks in Every subject. But Mm -hmm. um, when it came to like, if I had to choose a way to go, I thought I would maybe, you know, study English in college. And I was asked to apply for a research internship in my junior year. I was my chemistry high school teacher who said I should apply. And I thought there couldn't be anything more boring in the world than working in a lab. Mind (laughs) you, I didn't know exactly what that meant, but it sounded super boring. Like, why would I want to be with a bunch of test tubes and do essentially like our lab work um, that we do at school? Why would I do that? Um, You know, from nine to five every day during my summer, and but I applied anyway because I really respected this this teacher, and I thought you know what, it couldn't hurt to have something on my resume when I'm going to college, and I didn't know a lot of people who were going to apply for it, so I figured that would also help me stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got into the internship program, and I did my summer internship at the Salk Institute. Of biological studies, um, up in La Jolla, California, not too far from where I live, and that really just started my trajectory. Um, And I just I started to enjoy science in a different way. I saw some of the practical aspects of it, like more than just liking learning about chemicals and um, you know stoichiometry and other things like that. uh, I really got to appreciate how things work, and I can be a person who can investigate those things and people trust me to like handle very, very expensive equipment and (laughs) reagents that like, you know, you spill one drop on the floor and that's like hundreds of dollars. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really kind of a series of events similar to that, that happened all throughout my journey, all the way up until probably graduate school, like even going to graduate school, um, getting a PhD anyway, was not really what I set out to do. I thought I was going to go to medical school. Mm. Um, but really thankful to have mentors who saw something in me that I didn't necessarily see um, and helped guide me. And instead of keeping doors closed or trying to redirect me, they, in a way like thinking that I could have an easier path, quote unquote, which is what so many people of color, especially um, are told Mm -hmm. um, that you probably won't do well in this. So you should try this other easier thing that other people like you do. Um, They opened doors for me and they showed me the path, um, never giving me any dissolution that it would be easy, Mm -hmm. but letting me know that they would be there for me to help me overcome many of those challenges. And so I feel very fortunate um, to have found my place. And now that I am a scientist, I have a PhD in neuroscience, I have a job that helps other folks along their STEM journeys. It gives me so much pride and honor. And I really feel like it's a pleasure that I get to do this work Mm -hmm. um, and not really so much the other way around.
1: I love that. And I'd love to hear more about how you made the transition from biochemistry to neuroscience, because I mean, from working in a lab, I can definitely say that there's quite a bit of biochem in neuro, but that might not be the case for a lot of our listeners. They might not know how those two are related. Could you speak about how you made that leap? Sure. Um a lot of it was kind of by accident. Um
0: so my first research experience um in high school was in a neuroscience lab of studying learning and memory and I was in a huge lab that studied learning and memory, but also um, around the time when neurogenesis was really, really getting off the ground. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just some BS story that (laughs) people were making up, that you get these new cells in your brain after you're born. (laughs) It really was more um, really trying to figure out what's going on. What, What are these cells doing? Are they functional? And so that was really fascinating. But when I got to college, I went to a small liberal arts college for women, Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. And... You know, they have at a small liberal arts college, you have biology, chemistry, (laughs) physics, math, computer science. Like, those are your major options. Neuroscience um, was not an option. The closest thing would have been psychology, but I wasn't really interested in the psychological aspect. I really Mm -hmm. wanted to know more about the neurobiology of the brain. So um, I chose biochemistry because chemistry was a subject I loved in high school. And I got to. With biochemistry, um, which was more of like a concentration within the major um, and not really sort of kind of like on its own, um, I had the opportunity to understand more chemistry as it relates to the body and in more biological processes. Right. Um, but all throughout college, all of my summer internships were... With the exception of one, they were all in neuroscience. So I did various things in neuroscience, some behavioral, some Mm -hmm. uh, more molecular, really getting to see the gamut and how broad really the field of neuroscience was. And because I had a chemistry background, people really wanted to use that. They really Mm -hmm. liked that I had this um, opportunity to add that, both in terms of coming up with techniques to study the brain, but also understanding the chemical processes in the brain. So it wasn't as big of a leap, um, as it could have been, but I was so open. Like I didn't, you know, kind of not having an idea of what you want to do opens you up in many ways. Right. Because you're like, I'll, you know, this looks cool. Sure. I'll study, you know, how this thing works. I don't, I've never heard of that part of the brain before. What's the hippocampus. Okay, sure. Like (laughs) why not? Let's do that. So I didn't feel, um, sort of encumbered by this need to only study what I knew from my textbooks, I was really open to whatever opportunities there were. And it just so happened that in my PhD program, I did more neurochemistry. um, And it just sort of happened that that was a project that was interesting to me. It wasn't, I didn't feel like I have to do that because I have this chemistry background.
1: Right. Thank you for mentioning that you went to Spelman because that's also an HBCU and it's a great school. And I was wondering if you'd be able to compare some of the not only academic experiences, but also the social experience of being an undergrad at an HBCU versus being a grad student at a PWI.
0: Yeah, I it's hard to say compare, right? Because I did mm. not go to a PWI for my undergraduate experience. Yes. And going to grad going to that sort of institution for graduate school obviously is very different, right? You're just coming in with a different set of knowledge. You've lived a little bit of life and you're almost a grown up when you start graduate Uh, school. I wasn't, but (laughs) sure. Right. I wouldn't really say, you know, looking back, I was not, but you think you are. You're in your (laughs) twenties. A lot of times when you start grad school, especially if you go straight from undergraduate into graduate school. Um, but I will say I being born and raised in San Diego, Mm -hmm. I actually didn't realize what a white city or a, a I shouldn't say even just white, how not, um, large of a black population there was. And I Mm. identify as a black woman, um, how it's only, I think six or 7% um, in San Diego, but like my pediatrician was black. My dentist was black. Um, you know, many of the, the professionals with whom my parents associated with were black. So When I went to Spelman, a lot of people thought it would be a culture shock for me, but for me it wasn't because that Mm -hmm. was really the world that I operated in, sort of outside of school. And even within the schools that I attended, they were fairly diverse, um, mostly brown people, Mexican, uh, Pacific Islander, and um, Southeast Asian. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much of a culture shock, um, but it certainly going to an institution where Many of my professors are black. I, I think I only had one black teacher in the entire time I was in um, K through 12 and um, maybe two. I'm trying to think. I definitely know there was one in high school and i maybe one in elementary school mm-hmm. Um But then also all of my most of my classmates, probably 99 percent of my classmates being black women and having an all black male school across the street and another black co-ed university across the street on the other side. It was really quite a beautiful experience. And not only did I receive an incredible education and in no way felt um, inferior to anyone else when I got to graduate school or like I somehow had to settle for an education because I chose to go to historically black college, which many of my peers in high school thought I was throwing away my straight A grades um, wow. to attend this HBCU that many of them didn't even know anything about. Huh. But the, the identity you develop or the way in which you cultivate how you see yourself in the world was really important for me as a black woman to say, to challenge what I thought about myself, what I thought about my history, um, mm. but also really to revel in that and notice that there's so much more to being a black woman than just being a statistic or being a set of stereotypes. And even if I were those stereotypes, even if I matched every one of them, that doesn't make me less than right. Yes. Like I'm still just as worthy of respect mm-hmm. um, and just to live right. <laughs> to do, yes. to be who I am, to do what I do in the world, period. Mm-hmm. And so I got so much of that being at Spelman and being in the, what they call the Atlanta University Center with Morehouse and mm-hmm. Clark um, and Morris Brown, rest in peace. Um, but it was it was it was such a cool experience, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I loved it so much, um, and I even now, like if I see somebody with a Spelman shirt on, I they could be across the street, they can be almost a mile away, and I will run to them and be like, oh my God, did you go to Spelman? I went to Spelman too. (laughs) And it's like a love fest because we recognize that it's you get so much more than just an education when you go to Spelman. And many HBCUs are very similar, that you have this other set of experiences and life awakenings I would say um that you probably just can't get in other places so I feel I feel super lucky to have have gone there
1: I wasn't actually aware that there was still a perception that HBCUs were somewhat academically inferior I I always thought that because I don't even know where the statistic comes from but I know that is it 75 percent of practicing black physicians come out of HBCU undergrads. It's something like, it's 70 to 75%, isn't it? Yeah, it's very high. Yeah, I mean, I think lawyers is somewhere in and around that statistic as well. And that obviously proves that the academic component matches all of the other schools that are available in the United States. Where do you think that inferiority or the perception of inferiority comes from?
0: Well, I think like with many other things that um, are just born out of colonialism and white supremacy is this idea that the closer you are to whiteness the better and that because unfortunately systemically these other schools these predominantly white institutions are given so much more there they Mm -hmm. have so many more advantages that if somehow you are at a disadvantage in terms of you know things that are completely out of your control that it has that that means it has to be inferior, and I just don't believe that. Even yeah. many state schools that maybe they're not going to meet, they're not going to make the top twenty or even top fifty list of an HBCU, but if they're giving an opportunity for people to get an education mm-hmm. and to learn a skill, to learn new knowledge and to contribute. To me, that's just as valuable as going to a community college or going to perhaps a small state school that may not have a lot of funding. I don't think that what other people think of those institutions make it what it is, right? Right. Like I, I had a great education and whether you think my school is worthy or not because you've never heard of it or you think whatever stereotypical things you think about it, that, Oh, it's a bunch of black people that go there. So it can't be that good. Mm. Um, Then that's your hang up and Mm -hmm. cool for you. Um, Thankfully it's never kept me or any of my classmates out of any of the doors that they've tried to go through career wise, um, education wise. I mean, at almost every HBCU that I know of fortune 500 companies, go to the campus to recruit um, Mm -hmm. the top, Graduate schools and medical schools in the country go to these schools, yep. these HBCUs, not just Spelman, which is kind of in many ways considered one of the elite schools, but other state colleges. They're receiving that kind of attention because those companies know what those schools produce. They know that they're producing smart, capable, hardworking folks. Um, and that's where they're going to to get their, you know, even if you want to think of it as diversity quotas, they're still coming to us and not necessarily going to the school's Black student union at this mm-hmm. predominantly white institution. So there's something to be said about the way in which these schools are able to continue a legacy that is not something to be scoffed at. And thankfully, I my father is an HBCU grad. He went to Howard University for undergrad and graduate school. So. Yeah. You know, I, I learned very early on that there's a sense of pride when you're around people who want you to be there, right? Like yes. they care that you're there and they're going to make sure that you succeed. And oftentimes, you know, we get a bit harder. um life lessons from our professors because they don't want you to feel like you have to graduate and then use excuses. Like, nope, there's no makeup mm. test. There's no such thing as bonus uh, <laughs> bonus points. This is what you get and you learn how to be responsible early on, but they're going to make sure you succeed, right? They're going to say, mm. I see you got a D on this test. You need to come to my office. We're going to figure this out because I'm not letting you just fail my class. I know you have more um, than that to offer. And that's, I don't know a lot of people who have those stories that didn't go to HBCUs. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist anywhere else, um, but I think you kind of know what you're getting into when you go into an environment that was built for you to succeed when everybody else was shutting you out.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm wondering now how that entire experience prepared you for 2020 and for the police brutality that we've seen over and over and over again in a very brutal way. We knew it was happening, but this was the first time that I think we were all at home and could yeah. really process what was happening in an active manner. Did you feel more prepared, less prepared? Could you feel prepared, really?
0: Yeah, I was just thinking, is how, how are you prepared to deal with people continuing not to value um, Black life? Right. And even more than just Black life, honestly, don't value the life of citizens. That yeah. it's okay that law enforcement is able to be involved in these sort of heinous um, <laughs> crimes and and not receive any punishment for it, right? right. Like you, sh- it should not be okay for any person to be treated that way, to be mm-hmm. brutalized um, and, and worse off, killed. So I don't know if I was really prepared for it, but I do, I will say more in terms of the reactions and the responses, mm-hmm. um, and this is, Probably something that I've cultivated my entire life, but definitely reinforced um, at Spelman, and something that I've been able to hold on to as time has gone on. That we can't qu- we can't qualify life as being deserving to live or deserving to be abused um, at the hands of authority. That whether or not someone was committing a crime at the time of their demise or sleeping in their bed. They don't deserve to just be reacted to as if they were some animal on the street that has to be put down, right? Yeah. Like if you see all these images and stories of white criminals or people, you know, quote unquote, suspects being mm-hmm. taken into custody after having gunned down people with a assault rifle in their hands at the time, yeah, and safely being put into custody for them to await their face with justice. And that is how it should be. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think that other people who even commit these terrible crimes should be treated as if they are just, you know, some low life form, regardless of what we think, there's a justice system for a reason. And unfortunately, so many Black people are not even able to get to that point if that's what is suspected of them, right? That some that they've done something wrong that requires them to face the law. Mm -hmm. You know, I think so often it has in the news or even people have to preface, well, this person was innocent, this person was unarmed, this person, you know, look at all this good that they did in the community, and you know, I, I think it's important to to give perspective to the things that are happening and the people who we're dealing with, but they don't have to be blameless. They don't have to be pure Mm -hmm. to deserve some level of justice and for our outrage. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that has really been the most salient for me is how I talk about these things, especially to my white counterparts and my white colleagues in terms of, not always having to use these qualifiers for them to show sympathy to a person that was gunned down in their back or mm-hmm. playing with the toy gun in a park or in a, a store making a purchase, right? Like yeah. it doesn't, ha- we don't have to have all of those things for you to say, that's not okay. And we shouldn't stand for it. I shouldn't stand for it. You shouldn't stand for it. None of us should stand for it. So um, I think in that way, I, I, I feel like much of the, conversations I've been privy to have allowed me to have a broader perspective and respect for all people but especially for blackness like we we feel like because we're black that's the stain right so you don't want to make the stain bigger by then adding on to a rap sheet or this person was caught you know stealing cigarettes or this person Mm -hmm. did this when they were 15 and they were in juvenile hall and you know you don't want the stain to get bigger you don't want people to see the badness you only want them to focus on you know the the thing that you want them to focus on and Mm -hmm. you know it's being black is the crime, (laughs) apparently. So why do we feel like we have to cover it up? That's what makes, I think, this idea of white supremacy so egregious is that we're always having to explain ourselves and to Mm. have to be perfect. And even when you see these people who were in the civil rights movement, who were doing everything, quote unquote, right, Mm -hmm. by the book, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, these Blameless citizens, perfect records. Even they got brutalized, had dogs sicked on them, fire mm-hmm. hoses ran on them, their you know, their houses uh bombed or crosses burning in their front yard. Like it doesn't matter. So right. why do we constantly, even now, feel the need to make it seem like there's this level of respectability that you can have in order to be seen as a human being that's deserving to have to live out your life in order, right? Again, mm-hmm. you could be committing a crime, but you should be dealing with a jury of your peers or yep. a court, you know, that actually makes that determination. Um, so I know that was a really long answer, but.
1: it was an extraordinarily beautiful answer and so poignant. I, yeah, I, I don't even know what to say because it's so true. I was just nodding vigorously as you were talking because I have felt that in my own life as well. I have felt the need to be perfect in every mm. single way because I also feel like I'm representing so much more than just me. Right. I walk into a room and I think, if I mess up this presentation, if I am not the best student in the class, another person like me will show up and they'll automatically scoff and go, oh God, I don't want to have to deal with another one of those. Yes. And it's such an unfair burden to carry. I think your
0: point is super well taken, even in terms of the way we present ourselves in our professional life. We carry these burdens with us everywhere. Yeah. You know, whether it's just showing up to a seminar or, you know, walking out of our front door and trying to figure out what's going to happen to us at the end of the day. I mean, it's a, it's this constant state of paranoia and fear that these things can happen to us. And we want to believe that we have some control of how that happens. And mm. it is incredibly heavy to carry every single day um, mm. because, you know, i I say all the time, like, who cares what people think? And in general, that is my, you know, this is my mood forever, as as the kids (laughs) say. But um,
1: (laughs) Hashtag Beyonce. Or Beyonce
0: actually did say that. You're right, you're right. (laughs) Queen Queen Bee said that. Um, But it's not that that thought doesn't cross my mind. What will people think? How am I presenting myself? I want to represent my employer well. And I want to, I mean, certainly I want to represent myself well, but Mm -hmm. I don't want to create these other issues and when I walk into a room I do want people to, to see me as yep. a professional and as sort of a, a list of my accomplishments and not what they might assume of me for X y and z reason but it mm-hmm. is it's hard to escape that mm-hmm. um, and I do think that this this idea that we have to be have to be the the shining stars and hopefully change someone's mind not that p- other people can't you know just be who they are but white people often are not, (laughs) the whole race is not represented by a few bad people, a few serial Mm -hmm. killers, um, Mm -hmm. you know, anything like that. Like they're not seen as like, That even, you know, colonizers of just like pillaging the world for riches um, Mm -hmm. of their own gain, like that is not really kind of the representation. And yet we oftentimes if we make one mistake, it feels like, oh, no, I've let I've I've let my family down Mm I've let my my race down. I've let my community down. And it's a lot. It's a lot to carry. So I I hear what you're saying. um, And it is it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. And I don't know if I've learned how to not do that from my education, but I've certainly learned to consider it uh, a little bit differently and not always feel like everything has to be perfect in order Mm -hmm. for me to be seen as, well, the hope is that I don't have to be perfect to be seen as someone who is worthy of respect.
1: Mm. Do you think what has transpired in this past, I'd say, eight month period where being at home during the pandemic has allowed people to just sit and introspect and have conversations with their families about race. Do you think that will change the game at all?
0: I hope so. That is truly the hope that having the opportunity to slow down from the busyness of life and the going, 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 the literal coming and going all the time Mm. will help people really have an honest evaluation of themselves and what's happening and see that as a, I don't want to say a marker, but see that as a sign to to move forward and to do all the things that maybe they were too afraid to do. And I see it within my own institution where I work, folks really feeling the urgency behind what's going on and not that they didn't think it was a problem, not that they didn't think racism was a problem or discrimination or some of these other inequities, but Mm -hmm. that not only is it a problem, but we haven't done enough. Everything that we thought we were doing to make things better is not enough. It's just not. And here we can see where it's just busting apart at the seams. And so I, I've seen movement and I hope that momentum continues to change. I mean, certainly in the United States, there's almost some, um, some uh, joy in this idea that we might not really be out of the thick of the pandemic until the end of next year, Mm -hmm. because I kind of want people to still stay put so that they can work at these other things that they've either been too busy to tend to or unwilling to see the need to really put effort behind it. Like, well, I don't think bad things about Different people who are different than me, or I don't actively act out in this way, but that's not enough, right? Passive... Yeah behavior is not enough. We have to act against there. You can't, it's not enough to be not racist. You have to be anti-racist, right? Like there, it it requires intention and it requires action. And it's not enough to just think it and hope that, you know, the, the bad people die off and we (laughs) progress as a society, like Mm -hmm. at no point in history, (laughs) is there an idea that that has really happened? (laughs) Um, So yeah, I do think that I'm hopeful anyway, that there will be meaningful change And I just hope that enough people have been waking up um, and not using this time to hibernate.
1: Do you think that academia has more of an opportunity to change than the more general public? Do you think we're more situated to actually affect these greater, bigger, more substantial shifts in our thinking? I would hope so. But people who
0: are intellectuals aren't necessarily... Morally right. Yeah. And unfortunately, that I think actually creates a larger problem is that Mm -hmm. many people in academia, and I'm going to throw, I'll certainly throw in like the type of institution that NIH is because it's made up of a bunch of people that were, um, received higher education in the academy Mm -hmm. and taught there and were in leadership positions because it functions very similarly. But people who are intellectuals and scholars and value scholarship. Mm -hmm. They oftentimes pat themselves on the back for those same reasons and then ignore all of this other stuff going on. Like there are plenty of very well-respected, incredibly brilliant scientists who don't believe that bias exists in science. Hmm. And it's how can that be when you have all kinds of biases, whether they're bad quote unquote, or not, Mm -hmm. there's still a bias. Like you're, you can't separate yourself, your experiences, your thoughts, your ideas from your work. It's just Mm -hmm. impossible for a human being to do. You bring all of who you are to your work. And despite Mm -hmm. maybe some of your best efforts, it's just, it, it exists and it doesn't have to be a bad thing, but to act as if you can't also have these biases against the people who are doing science or even the science itself. I mean, there are still um, journals in the year 2020 publishing about like black people being inferior. Yeah. It's just, you know, and so I think oftentimes you set many people set themselves up to think that they're above the idea that, they can be racist or they can be biased or discriminatory mm-hmm. and oftentimes absolve themselves of the work to fix it. And I think yeah. that's probably a much bigger problem in the academy than even in the general public, because mm-hmm. now you've got these people who do have the ability to change and to understand why there's a need for this change, even evidence-based approaches who just are like no I, I know everything i'm very smart um you know we don't have a problem here that's their problem that's yeah. that's the the despicable's problem or the deplorable's problems mm. out in you know wherever place that you decide people who don't know anything who are uneducated it's a their problem it's not yours mm. but i do also think that that creates a bigger responsibility to make a change and because you do have the ability to see what's really going on to understand the data, to understand what's happening and make a change and do something about it and create better structures that allow for um, the elimination of racism, sexism, name the ism, name the phobia. You can do that. It's well within your power. It's do you want to is a whole nother situation. So I'm hopeful that it can be done, Mm -hmm. whether there's real movement um, sort of m- more broadly is anybody's guess, but I'm glad to see, I've ha- I've been talking with a lot of trainees um, and other faculty and people in leadership positions um, at academic institutions who are thinking about this, even thinking about bringing in critical race theory, talking about um, reparations frameworks, like things that mm. I would have never thought, you know, a science department would talk about, you know, maybe a sociology, maybe <laughs> psychology, Maybe even, you know, in some of the other uh, humanities, but certainly not in the sciences. And I'm really encouraged by that. And I hope it snowballs. I hope other people start to see that in order for you to really grow in a way that is meaningful and true to all these diversity statements that folks (laughs) have been putting out, I hope that you see that there are other other places doing it better and that students and and, and faculty are going to those places and saying no, 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 I'm not coming here to study because you don't seem to really value this. And I'm not just talking about black and brown faces. I mean, I hope that everyone says it's not acceptable for you to just do this lip service. Yes. We need to see actual movement. What are you actually doing to create a more inclusive environment? Because it's not just about creating space for black folks in this time of, of civil unrest particularly as it relates to racism. There's all kinds of other nasty, dirty secrets going on Mm -hmm. across identities at many of these institutions that's brushed under, you know, brushed under the rug. Well, they bring in a lot of money. So, and that's just not acceptable. And we can't, Mm. you know, in this, this time, there's no more excuses. And I hope people in the general public, but certainly trainees, especially um, decide that they're not going to stand for it and continue to push their institutions to not just, make a statement but to make change to have actual action behind
1: all of those words yeah because i mean the letters came in oh they were pouring
0: in they were i couldn't (laughs) wait to tweet them out and i'm reading them like well where i all you say is you're committed to diversity but what what's the commitment yes exactly (laughs) what what have you done what are you currently like doing what are you going (laughs) to continue to do what are you going to implement that's new like this Come on, like, yeah. and you're you're smart enough to know that's not how we do. it. Like, especially scientists, are you kidding me? We, you know, we love data. You gotta come on. You gotta put. You gotta have some specific aims. <laughs> we need to see some preliminary data.
1: Some future directions,
0: right? Exactly. <laughs> Give us something to work with. Some some, some yeah. meat. This would never pass peer review ever.
1: Just to kind of wrap things up, I'm wondering if you have any life lessons that you would like to share from your experiences in STEM you've had. I guess, more than, what, 10 to 15 years that you've been in a STEM career or training stage. Yeah. Do you have any sort of, like, takeaways that you'd like to share, some gems with you, with our audience?
0: I would say be open. Be open to experiences, um, Mm. opportunities, but also don't settle. So, Mm. you know, those two things do not have to be Um, you don't accept one and then like give up the other. Like, I think both things can be true, but I think in terms of openness, like you never know what opportunity is there. Be it a research opportunity, stepping out and, you know, saying, I'm not really interested in this career path. I want to try something else. Um, Allowing people to, to introduce you to other opportunities, but also not saying I'm going to suffer through this postdoc because I really want to be in a lab that publishes nature and science papers mm-hmm. um, that I'm going to accept, you know, having a, a poor mentorship or poor um, a, a toxic environment because I'm going to get the the science experience that I want. I really want to do X and this person is an expert in that field. Um, I think so often we make concessions and, Um, thinking that that we have to do that in order to be successful. And that's not always the case. Um, But also, you know, I hear so often, oh, well, you shouldn't, you know, if you want to live in California, you know, you're not going to have a lot of experiences. Like you should be open to going to the middle of nowhere um, in Montana or Oklahoma, if you want to get a faculty position, and I say if you want to move to California, move to California. That's it's like the hard and end of it. Like you don't have to feel like you have to be so open that you have to, you know, end up being far from your family or being mm. miserable in terms of social life or whatever the case may be. And I think so often scientists are told to to accept whatever they're given. And I don't believe that at all. When it comes to culture, when it comes to, you know, like I want to work at an R1 period, the end, I'm not accepting anything else. That's what you want to do. Go for it. Let me know how I can help you get there. Um, So yeah, when I say be open, I don't think you have to just accept anything, but I think, you know, just thinking about there's so many opportunities out there, especially for scientists and you don't have to, Life doesn't have to be one way, even when you're, you know, you know, you want to be a faculty member um, and you you want to stay in science and have your own lab. It doesn't always have to look like the way your mentor did it Mm -hmm. or the way your friend did it. Your journey to that point may be very different than other people. And that's that does not have to be a bad thing. It's okay that it looks different or you approach it differently than other folks. Um, That's one piece of advice. And then the second thing would be. to not feel burdened by this idea of having to do everything right. Mm. And I don't necessarily mean being perfect, but like similar to being open, but also being willing to um, not settle. Mm. So often we feel like I have to have this many things on my CV. I have to have spoken at this many places. I have to know th- these many people like wanting to pack your CV or feel like you need more experience than what you already have. Mm -hmm. And I think you should do what you love, do what interests you and motivates you to get up every day or to work late at night or to work on the weekends or whatever the case may, you know, however your work schedule works out. (laughs) But what is it that is going to help you? And if, if it's not that, like if doing this other thing just to say you did it so you can put it on your CV or you can, you know, talk about it in your interview, it's not going to be worth it. Mm -hmm. So I think, pursuing what is fuels you and you know, even if it's tedious, like it may not be something you particularly like to do, but it you see like the value in in that, the end point. Like maybe it's doing R code. Like I hate mm-hmm. R code, but like I know this is gonna actually enhance my <laughs> my research or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, I think you should do things that are meaningful to you and where you wanna be, but not just doing it for the sake of saying, I did it and it's, you know, it's been done. So um because it's not I I have, there's not been anything that I've done that I feel like I didn't because I didn't have the experience or I didn't have it. It's kept me out of what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, actually not having those things probably led me to be in the position that I am. And I love what I do and I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And so glad that I didn't try to make my career journey look like anybody else's because mm-hmm. these other people did it this way. And they, they took these courses and, They did X, Y, Z boot camps. Um, Yeah.
1: You know. Facts. That's a (laughs) perfect way to end this episode.
0: Woo! That was so good.